Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that all Scripture is breathed by you, and so it is all useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, training us in righteousness. And Father, we know that as we've looked at the book of Revelation, that the main message is so wonderful and clear that Christ has won the victory and we need to keep trusting him. But at the same time, there are some parts that are hard to understand. And so as we look at this difficult chapter together now, we pray that you'll help us to understand it correctly. But more than that, we pray that you'll help us to bring our hearts and minds into line with your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems these days, uh, if you want to make a movie, one movie is not enough. You have to make at least a trilogy. If you're going to, even if the book's only 100 pages long, you can get at least three movies out of that. You might want to go for a whole cinematic universe if you really want to get into it. But uh, any good movie trilogy, you will know the second movie is meant to leave you on a cliffhanger. That's how it's meant to work. So first movie, what's it meant to do? It's meant to, the good guys are meant to win but there's meant to be still a threat of danger. But then the second movie, the bad guys come back, the heroes are under threat, bad guys on top, and you're left wondering how on earth are the good guys going to get out of this one. That's how it's meant to work. And of course, that was Star Wars, wasn't it? I figure I'm I'm not going to ruin that for anyone. Am I? You know what I mean? I do remember I talked about Star Wars in a, in a sermon once and a student minister we had from South Africa at the time, if you remember Ryan, country out and said, I've never seen Star Wars. So I sent him home with homework that week to watch Star Wars. But uh, just in case you missed it, first movie, good guys win, but not totally. Then second movie, The Empire Strikes Back. The name says it all. Uh, bad guys look like they're going to win. And so you're left on the cliffhanger. And then, though, you come to the final movie, or at least the final movie, until they realised how much money they could make out of prequels and sequels. Uh, and then the final movie, it's where it all gets wrapped up. The goodies win, the baddies lose. So I've, ru- I've ru- ruined the Return of the Jedi for you now, but uh, that's how it ends. This little section of Revelations, flick back to chapter 12 with me in your Bibles, because it all goes together, 12, 13, and 14. This is a bit like a movie trilogy. And what we've seen all through Revelation, actually, is how we keep getting these repeated views of history. So uh, if you sit down and read Revelation and think it's telling you the story of history from chapter 1 through to chapter 22, you're not going to understand the book of Revelation. It doesn't work that way. What it does is give you one view of all of history, then from a slightly different perspective, another view of all of history, and so on and so forth. So if you remember, we've had the seven seals. That was one view. Then we've had the seven trumpets. That was another. Now this section, chapters 12 to 14, is another one of those, but this one has the theme of the person persecution of the church. So that's the theme of these three chapters. And so chapter 12, it was episode one. So it was, and I called it heavenly wars when I was looking at it. And we saw there, you'll see the theme in a minute. We see there how the devil opposed Jesus, but Jesus defeated him. Uh, Jesus died on the cross. That was the whole message of Revelation chapter 12. Jesus in his death on the cross was defeating the devil because what was he doing? He was taking away the devil's power to accuse you. Because Jesus' blood has washed you clean, he's taken the punishment you deserve for your sin, now the devil can no longer say to God, that person deserves your judgment if you trust in Jesus. So remember that. Remember the message of chapter 12. If you trust in Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Excuse me, not even the devil. But second episode, even though the devil has been defeated, Even though his end is certain, we saw how, until Jesus returns, remember I I told the story of the shark on the boat. 
So the devil is like the shark on the boat. He's been captured, he's been taken out of the water, he's been defeated, his death is certain, but in his last few minutes, he's going to thrash around and cause as much damage as he possibly can. And so chapter 13, that was the devil fights back, if you're seeing the theme. He can't win, he can't take away your forgiveness and your salvation. You have nothing to fear from the devil in what really matters. That is your salvation. Nothing to fear. But... Like the shark, he can cause damage now. And what he focuses on in particular is persecuting the church. The devil's job in this time, if you like, his whole mission in this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is to make it as hard as possible for you to be a follower of Jesus. That's what he's on about. So last week was a really dark chapter, if you remember. The message was it is not going to be easy to follow Jesus. But you have to persevere. That's the word that keeps coming up over and over again in these chapters. Persevere. Some Christians will be killed for their faith. Some will be put into prison. And even if, praise God, that's not our fate here in Sydney right now, well, you might have to be unpopular if you want to follow Jesus. People may not like you if you follow Jesus. You will have to face consequences for sticking with Christ. So last week was a hard message. Persevere in your faith no matter what. But now we get to the third instalment, and it is the message of hope, at least for those who love Jesus. So I've called this one the return of the Lamb. So come with me to Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And we've got two scenes in today's instalments. Scene 1 is the message of hope, and that's lifting our eyes to the heavens. This is verses 1 to 5. So look at verse 1. Remember, he's been talking about how we're suffering here on earth. We're facing persecution. And then he says, then I looked. And there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him were 144,000 who had his name, that's Jesus' name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So it's like there's a shift in scene. The camera goes from us struggling here on earth to keep trusting Jesus, and our eyes are lifted up to heaven. And, of course, standing there in heaven, we've seen this already in Revelation, is the Lamb which is, of course, Jesus, the one who died for our sins. And with him are 144,000 faithful followers. Now, we met the 144,000 back in chapter 7, but that was late last year, so I'll I'll remind you about that. Uh, You might remember I suggested that's a symbolic number, which we see all through Revelation. Wherever you see the number 12 in Revelation, it's referring to God's people. So I think the 144,000 is 12 twelves. So it's the Old Testament people of God that based on the 12 tribes of Israel and the New Testament people of God built on the foundation of the 12 apostles together. And whenever you see the number thousands, it means a lot. And we use it in exactly the same way when we say there were thousands of people at the shops yesterday. We're not saying we've counted them. We're saying there were loads there. And so the point here is this is the vast multitude of God's people. This is all of God's people gathered with the lamb now it might be that this is a vision of the future so it might be that this is john seeing the end of time when jesus returns and so this is all of god's people through all of time but i think it's a picture of all of god's people who are in heaven now so if you look at the end of verse 4 it says that they are the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth So I think this is a picture of brothers and sisters who have kept trusting Jesus, have died in their faith, and have now gone to be with the Lord in heaven. And so the point of this is to get us to lift our eyes up 
and be encouraged. That's why it's here. Whatever suffering you face in this life, you have this to look forward to. However hard it gets here on earth, you have that to look forward to. Our place in heaven with the Lord is secure. And that's the point down at verse 13. Jump down to verse 13 now. He says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, the dead who die in the Lord from now on are blessed. Yes, says the Spirit, let them rest from their labours, for their works follow them. See what it's saying? It is actually a blessing to go to be with the Lord. And we know that's true for a Christian. To live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why Christians can face suffering and can face persecution and can face sickness and disease and ultimately death in a different way to people who have no hope. Sadly, in my job, sometimes I'm asked to take funerals for people who did not know Jesus. And the difference between a Christian funeral for people who know and love Jesus and people who didn't know the Lord is stark. Because when Christians have a funeral, we know, we mourn. It's a horrible thing. Death is not good. It's a horrible thing. We mourn it, but we mourn as people who have hope. We know we will see this person again. If you do not have that hope, death is awful and funerals are awful. We have hope. We know what we have to look forward to. I think for many of us, modern Christians like us, I think we do not look forward to heaven enough. If I asked most of us, what are you looking forward to? It would be something here on earth in the future, other than perhaps the very elderly who aren't really in this congregation. Is that fair? And I think that's because things are pretty good down here for most of us. But I want to tell you, for Christians in many parts of the world, they know this world is not heaven. They're under no illusions. So we need to remember this when we go through trials in this life. Whether it's persecution like this part of the Bible is about, or whether it's sickness or whether it's loss, there will be a time when you will realize this world is not heaven. This world is hard. And it is hard to follow Jesus in this world. That's when we need to remember it is worth it. Our struggle is not in vain. So back to the 144,000 though, look at them again. The description here purposely sets the 144,000 up against the people described in chapter 13 who gave in. So remember, in chapter 13, you're going to have a choice, it said. Are you going to keep worshipping Jesus where you will miss out and face persecution, or are you going to join in with the world? And if you join in with the world, the image in chapter 13 was you will worship the statues, the idols, and you'll get the mark of the beast on your hand or on your forehead. Well, here, these are people who didn't get the mark of the beast because what did they get? Look at verse 1. With him were 144,000 who had... Jesus's name and his father's name written on their foreheads and these people don't worship a a useless idol these people have the worship of God on their lips look at verse 3 says they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 see the point is these people missed out in this life these people were persecuted in this life but they were not suffering for nothing See, whatever you miss out on in this life, you'll receive tenfold in heaven with the Lamb. That is our hope if you are someone who loves Jesus. But it is only our hope if we persevere and don't give up. There is no one in heaven who caves in and gets the mark of the beast from chapter 13. 
There's no one in heaven who caves in and worships the idols, who worships anything other than Jesus in this world. And that's actually the point of the descriptions in verses 4 and 5. So come there with me now. Look at verse 4. It says, These are the ones not defiled with women, for they have kept their virginity. Now that seems really, really strange. And maybe I needed another sort of warning on this uh, sermon. Because if you think about it, doesn't that exclude any married man? So I am excluded from heaven. Some of the apostles were married. Uh, it would seem very strange if that's what it was saying. The Bible is not against sex where it's meant to be. Uh, in a committed lifelong marriage partnership and even sexual sin is forgivable if a person repents and trusts in Jesus. So I think this is meant to be figurative, which is not surprising in the book of Revelation. All through the Old Testament and actually in other parts of Revelation, when people turn away from God to worship other gods, it's called adultery. It's called impurity. We have slept with someone other than our one true love. So I think this is a way of saying these people have not given in to the pressure to worship other gods. They have remained pure. They've remained true to Jesus alone, which leads to the next thing there. Look there. It says these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. So it's saying these are people who don't give in, who, who don't forsake Jesus. These are people who don't bow down and worship anyone else. They keep trusting Jesus no matter what happened. So that's what all these people who are there in heaven with the lamb have in common. They have kept standing up and saying, I am with Jesus, no matter what the cost. They've remained pure. The hope of heaven is wonderful. That's what you look forward to if you trust in Jesus. And it should be what sustains you to keep trusting Jesus, no matter what. But that hope is only for those who persevere in their faith. Sadly, there will be people on the last day who say to Jesus, I trusted you in my heart, but I just stopped talking about it. I just kept quiet about it. Or I always did believe, but I just didn't want to rock the boat and it was all a bit too hard. You don't understand, don't you, Jesus? And Jesus will say, you never knew me. Only those who follow the lamb wherever he goes will be there. My prayer for every person here tonight, every person listening, is not just that you call Jesus your Lord now. I praise God that you call Jesus your Lord now. That is wonderful. But my prayer is that you will still call him your Lord even if hard things happen to you, even when the hard times come, and that you will still be calling him your Lord right up to the day you die or until Jesus returns, whichever comes first. That is my prayer for you, that you will persevere that is the word of these chapters. Just look back later on tonight through chapter 12, 13, and 14, and look at how many times it says you must persevere. Over and over again it says it. You must persevere in your faith. Well, that was the easy scene, the positive scene. Now we come to the hard scene, the one with the viewer warning. What happens if we do not accept the offer of salvation in Christ? Or what happens if we do not persevere? What happens if we give up on following Jesus? Well, that's scene two, and I've got the other option, and this is verses 6 to 20. Look with me at verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying high overhead, having the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, if you just paused there and didn't read on, you would think something positive is about to come now, because when you hear the words eternal gospel, what do you think of? What does the word gospel mean? 
A few people mumbled it, good news, that's what it means. So we think of the good news rightly when we read that verse and we think, yeah, the good news that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to be our saviour. But part of preaching the good news is declaring what Jesus is saving us from. Part of preaching the gospel is declaring what happens if you do not accept the offer of salvation in Christ. Preaching the gospel means warning people that God's judgment is coming. And that is the warning that these angels in the next vision bring. And there's three parts to what they warn about. So the first thing they warn is that God is to be feared and judgment is certain. So look at verse 7. The angel says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. God is not a cuddly man in a white robe. God is not your best mate, like so many Australians seem to think. I'll be all right with God. He's my best mate. You know, God is not to be taken for granted. God is love. That is true. But God is also to be feared. We read that in Proverbs 1 before. What is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord. It is a horrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The moment Jesus rose from the dead, the clock started. The clock that's counting down unto the judgment day. The judgment day is certain. God only delays it, 2 Peter tells us, to give more people the chance to repent and believe and find salvation. Second thing that the angels warn is that the pleasures of this world are deceptive and lead to destruction. Verse 8. A second angel followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. Who made all nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath? We're going to hear more about Babylon in future chapters. But in in Revelation, Babylon stands for the world opposed to God. Anyone who lives in this world and does not trust in Jesus, Revelation says, is living in Babylon. And Babylon seems incredibly powerful and incredibly alluring. Babylon speaks to you every night through your television set. Babylon is speaking to you right now. It's there in your pocket saying to you, pull me out. Look at Facebook instead of listen to God's word. It talks to you through peer pressure. It talks to you through billboards. Babylon is so seductive. And she says, come and experience what your heart desires. Don't believe what the Bible says. Don't listen to those wowsers. Sleep with who you want to sleep with. Drink what you want to drink. Watch what you want to watch. But this angel says it's all a lie. And it will not bring you the fulfillment it promises. It will actually just bring you pain in this life and wrath on the judgment day. And then thirdly, and the warnings get worse and worse. Thirdly, it warns just how horrible God's judgment will be. Look at verse 9. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, please listen very carefully. These are horrible words and follow along if you do have your Bible. It says, and a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, that's talking about anyone who doesn't follow Jesus, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. This is a horrible picture. It is a picture of hell. 
of eternal judgment and torment. And we haven't got time to look at the rest of these verses that Matt read out for us before, but they give even more horrible images. The worst is in verses 19 and 20, where it's a picture of people being crushed like grapes in the great wine press of God's wrath. Sometimes people are quick to sort of try and make these verses say what they're not saying. They say, oh, they're just, they're just metaphors. There's not really fire and sulfur and, and all that sort of stuff. And that might be true, but if that makes you think it won't be bad, then please don't do that. Uh, any metaphors here are to show us how horrible hell is. Reality will be worse than any metaphor the Bible can come up with. And so the point of this vision is to remind us there are only two outcomes for every one of us. There is no sitting on the fence. There is the wonder of heaven with the lamb, or there is the horrible reality of God's eternal judgment. There is nowhere in between. There are no shades of grey on this. Why do we struggle so much with these pictures of God's judgment, do you think? Why do we all cringe a little? Why do we read descriptions like this one and cringe and squirm? Why this week, as I've been preparing to preach on it, have I spent half the week thinking, why don't I just change it and preach on chapter 15 instead and leave this one out? The only reason I'm preaching on this passage is because we preach through every chapter. That's what we do. Why do we struggle so much? Ultimately, I think it's because we don't actually see just what a horrible thing sin is. That's why we struggle so much. We don't really ever grasp what a horrible thing it is to say to the God of the universe who made us, I want nothing to do with you. I'll live my life my way, thanks. And then we don't really grasp what a horrible thing it is to reject the gift of his son who he sent into the world, who died for us, and we say, no, no, I don't want nothing to do with him. And then that's before we even get to grasping how badly we treat other people. And that's before we even get to grasping what goes on in our minds and in our hearts that no one else sees now God's judgment is awful but it is fair and it is just and so why are we given this awful vision straight after the wonderful vision of heaven I'll share two reasons as we close the first is so that we persevere in our faith it's there in verse 12 which is the key verse look there with me it says, this demands the perseverance of the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. See, when we look at the world or when you look at the world and think maybe following Jesus means I'm missing out, and we all have those moments. When we experience pain and suffering, and especially when it's directly because of our faith in Jesus, we must not give up. You see, sliding away from following Christ and sliding into just following the world can seem harmless and it sometimes happens without us even realizing it. we just get out of the habit of reading God's words we just get out of the habit of meeting with our brothers and sisters in Christ get out of the habit of praying it is not harmless everything rests on it that's what this is saying to you and if you are someone who doesn't yet know Jesus I want you to come to know Jesus that's what this passage is saying to you come and know the wonder of heaven rather than the horrible reality of God's judgment. Come to the life course and find out more. Come and talk to me. See, the thing is, sometimes it's being reminded of the wonderful goodness of heaven. Sometimes that's what will help us to persevere. But sometimes we need to remember the horrible reality of hell to encourage us to persevere. Either way, we must persevere in our faith. 
What do I keep saying is the message of Revelation? Jesus wins, so keep trusting Jesus. Why on earth would you give up trusting Jesus when he is the one who wins in the end? So first point, this is here to make us persevere in our faith. But then number two, this vision demands that we preach the gospel to our world. We can't really visualize this, but you can imagine a Christian who has faced real persecution, you know, whose, whose family have been thrown into jail or whose family have been put to death, as has happened to many, many Christians in our world. You can imagine them reading this and saying, bring it on. I long for the day when the angels of judgment come. That's not totally wrong. It's right to long for justice. It's right to long for evil to be dealt with. But we need to remember it's not our job to judge the world. That's not why Jesus has put us here. He will judge the world when he returns in glory. And so even if there are people who mock you for being a Christian, who persecute Christians, it's not our job to judge them. Do you remember what Jesus said about how you respond to your enemies? Look at Matthew chapter 5. He said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And then to make it even clearer, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's not our job to judge the world. It's not our job to fight back against people who persecute Christians and do the same to them. We do not believe in an eye for an eye. If someone mocks your faith, what do you do? You pray for them and you love them. And the most loving thing you can ever do is share the good news with them, including the hard bits, including the warnings, but share the gospel with them so that they might come to find the forgiveness and salvation we have found. See, we do not have a place in heaven because we are better than other people. I hope you know that. We, do not, we, we are sinners like everyone else. It's just that we have come to know Jesus and so we have found forgiveness and salvation. We have a place in heaven because we trust in Jesus, so we need to offer that hope to anyone and everyone else. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this difficult part of your word. We thank you for the wonderful comfort it is to know that heaven awaits those who trust in Christ that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. But Father, we thank you also for the strong challenge and the reminder of your judgment. And we pray that it might inspire us to persevere in our faith ourselves, but it might also challenge us to share the hope of salvation with anyone who will listen. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.